In John Hammond's book, Smart Choices, he lays out a scenario he often uses to test people's decision-making abilities. He'll get up in front of an audience and describe an introverted man, someone who is shy, reserved, retiring. He then says that the man he's described is either a librarian or a salesman, and he asks everyone in the audience, which one is he? Nearly everyone replies librarian, like you probably did. Salespeople need to be outgoing. Librarians tend to be reserved. But everyone is wrong. The man's a salesman. This might seem like a silly exercise. You don't know anything about this made-up person, and I could have just as easily revealed that he wasn't a salesman or a librarian and was actually Luke Hemsworth, the least appreciated of all the Hemsworth brothers. But the decision-making process people go through to land at librarian is what's interesting. We only know one thing about this guy, that he's an introvert, and that drives our decision. But we know a whole lot about librarians and salespeople, and we tend to ignore that. You might not know the exact numbers, but you definitely know that there are way more salespeople in the U.S. than librarians. A quick Google search tells me that the U.S. has somewhere between 14 million and 20 million salespeople and only about 184,000 librarians. For round number's sake, let's say there are 18 million salespeople. Based on those numbers, right off the bat, there's a 99% chance the person described is a salesperson and not a librarian. If you want, you could factor in that the person is introverted. You could estimate that maybe only 5% of salespeople are introverts, whereas half of all librarians are. That still means there are 10 introverted salespeople for every introverted librarian. The odds are still at 90% salesperson. Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky call this the base rate. It's very important for making decisions, but can get clouded easily when specific details are introduced. The base rate of salespeople versus librarians would tell you to always guess salesperson, but the specific details that lead you to think you know something about that specific person lead you astray. I almost open up with the example of catching your spouse cheating on you. It's a bit scandalous for the idea to start up crowd, but the same logic holds. If you catch someone cheating on you and they say they've never done it before, maybe that's true, but it's probably not. Think about base rates. How many affairs happen versus how many get caught? If 10% of affairs get caught, then you've got a one in 10 chance of this being the first time your partner has cheated on you, despite all the details you know about them that are clouding that base rate. Unless, of course, you date librarians. Everyone knows they are way too introverted to cheat. Today, we're going to talk about who you should listen to for advice and what you should take away from that person's experience. This is a tricky one in the startup world. You can't open up your email without getting bombarded by tactics and think pieces and whatever else telling you that X is the way to build your business or Y is the way to grow your audience or whatever. The details, if someone is successful, how many Twitter followers they have, what company they work for, often cloud the base rate and you take what they're saying as gospel. We'll pull that all apart today. Librarians and marital affairs all before the intro music. Can you believe this podcast is free? This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you got a startup idea and a full-time job, we have two slots available for the March 31st cohort. It's a seven-week program where we'll validate and build your idea, and you'll come out the other end a different person. Also, if you haven't reached out to Marissa yet at NewCo and you're trying to get funding for your startup, what are you waiting for? Marissa at buildwithnewco.com. Back to it.
We'll start today talking about survivorship bias. Survivorship bias is concentrating on people that are successful and what they think made them successful while overlooking lessons from people that weren't successful. It happens all the time in the startup world and it can be pretty sneaky. It's also way more prevalent now as there are unlimited outlets for successful folks to share their path. So we've ended up with unlimited outlets for successful people to repeatedly tell a continually evolving version of why they were successful and it is probably screwing up your startup. Two more things make it even worse. Entrepreneurs can rarely pinpoint what actually made them successful in the first place. There are all sorts of cognitive biases around that. And in a 25 minute interview, there's no way to get into all the depth and nuance of a successful business. And two, the tactics the interviewers push for, the things people like you and I find so interesting, are almost certainly outdated by the time we hear them. James Clear is the author of Atomic Habits, a New York Times bestselling book, which became a bestseller because he wrote a newsletter for nearly a decade before he published the book. He built up an audience through a ridiculously consistent twice-weekly newsletter, pushing highly shareable articles on habits and mental models, and then he wrote a book and capitalized on all of his content and goodwill that he built up through the years. The same story is echoed by authors, direct-to-consumer brands, angel investors, even founders of B2B SaaS products. They build an audience through consistently showing up for years with a newsletter or a podcast or some other way of getting in touch with their audience. Then they capitalize on that audience with a product that took off because of all of that built-in evangelist trust. And so this is the advice given by nearly everyone to any new entrepreneur. Start a newsletter, start a podcast, own a content space, show up for 18 months or three years or however long it takes to build your audience, then sell to them. They'll trust you and they'll love you. This is survivorship bias. Lots of people running successful businesses in 2021 started doing this strategy in 2013, and it was a huge reason for their success. But there is our librarian problem. We're letting details cloud the base rates. So let's look at those base rates. If you're one of the hundreds of founders who've told me that they'll be starting up by building an engaged, trusted audience, let's see what that will actually look like. We'll start with the base rate for a podcast. If in the first seven days after you release an episode of your podcast, you get 26 downloads, that's 26 people, you're immediately in the top 50% of all podcasts with 26 people. That's not a lot of people. That's like my mom and her friends that she forces to download my podcast. And half of all the podcasts out there get fewer than that number. And that's just not on your first episode. That's on any podcast you release. So it could be your 200th episode. If you get 72 downloads, you're in the top 25% of podcasts. If you get 231 downloads, that puts you squarely in the top 10%. 539 puts you in the top 5%. And just over 3,000 downloads in the first week after your episode launches puts you in the top 1% of all podcasts. The top 0.001% of podcasts are doing great. A handful of podcasts get hundreds of thousands or millions of downloads, but all of those are the ones you've heard of. They all have production teams. They've got writers, and that is not going to be you. So if you're starting a podcast, you can reasonably expect to have around 100 people listen to it if you do a great job. Now, you might make a top 1% podcast and get 3,000 people downloading each week, 
but it's unlikely just looking at the numbers. Newsletter base rates are very similar, with subscribers and open rates being shockingly low. And attrition for both podcasts and newsletters has skyrocketed as options have flooded the market. Building a following on social media follows that same curve. When James Clear started his newsletter, there were only a handful of weekly newsletters and none of them were on habits. There weren't endless services to help you start a newsletter in 10 minutes as well. There were barriers to entry and moats that he could create. In 2015, there were fewer than 50,000 podcasts. Today, there are over 850,000. I'm not saying this isn't the right strategy for you. I'm just saying it certainly isn't the no-brainer that successful entrepreneurs say it is. You need to go into this with your eyes open. And this is just an example. Every piece of advice you hear or strategy you consider pursuing, make sure you think about base rates and survivorship bias. Way too many startups make strategic decisions based on results that come from a different world. When I was in business school, a huge chunk of my classmates were interested in investment banking. Not because they liked investment banking, nobody likes investment banking, but because it was seen as a guarantee. You put in your two years, you get your ass kicked, then you end up in an obscenely high paying job somewhere else, private equity or a hedge fund or whatever. You put in the work, you get the reward. Guarantees are incredibly attractive for entrepreneurs. They also don't exist. Anyone who tells you that if you just put your head down and show up week after week and write a newsletter for two years and you'll end up with 25,000 subscribers, that's someone who started their newsletter in 2013, not in 2021. Base rates just tell a different story. I watched an interview with Anthony Bourdain the other day where he was talking about his big break. He'd been a cook for 20 years in New York City and on his way into his restaurant each day, he passed those free newspaper stand things that everyone in New York City is conditioned to ignore. But he didn't ignore them, and he liked them, and he wanted to write an article that would be published in one of them. So he wrote an article on food in New York City from the perspective of a chef, telling patrons not to eat fish on Mondays, that the bread was all recycled, and a bunch of other insider industry restaurant secrets. I'll pop it in the show notes. I've read most of his books, and like everything he's ever written, it is frustratingly good. Bourdain sent the piece to his friend, who was the editor of that corner newspaper, but they never ended up running it. He told his mom how upset he was that he didn't end up getting his piece run, and she convinced him to mail it into the New Yorker. So he did. A month later, his article ran, and it was the biggest story in the city. Within two days, he had a book deal, and he was on his way to becoming the Anthony Bourdain that we all know. But what's most interesting is what the interviewer says next. Something like, so to everyone out there wanting to be the next Anthony Bourdain, try writing something and sending it to a bunch of publishers because you never know. But then Anthony jumps in and says, no, that's not the lesson at all. The lesson is to live in a way that gives you something interesting to say. And this is your opportunity. Differentiation will come from you stacking up meaningful interactions with your customers. Every startup that's successful today was able to do it through some means, but always remember that the interactions are what's important, not the tactic. So what's the takeaway of today's pod? Be weary of survivorship bias and skeptical of tactics that were effective in a different time. Check base rates so you work on something that'll actually have a good chance of working. And... Recognize that it's probably unlikely for you to grow a big audience in 2021 like the companies that are successful in 2021 did in 2014. And that's okay. It saves you the cost of that podcast mic you're going to buy. 
The important thing is those meaningful interactions, and there have never been more direct ways to get in touch with your customer than there are in 2021. Focus on three questions. What's the unique insight you've gotten to your customer? Where does your customer exist physically and online? And how can you provide this unique value to this customer immediately to kickstart the feedback loop? I'll end with a quick example. I met a founder recently working on a sleep consultancy for parents with a newborn. They help the parents sleep, not the kid. The program consisted of stress relief techniques, physical room setups, diet, napping tips. It was holistic. The founder was planning on starting a weekly newsletter interviewing new parents about things that had worked to get their kids to sleep. But this doesn't fit any of the questions we just mentioned. It doesn't leverage the founder's insight. It doesn't meet customers where they are. And it doesn't provide the unique value immediately to help you get that Bourdain learning curve going fast. And when you factor in base rates and the incredible amount of time it would take to make this newsletter, that'd be it. Your startup's done. Answering those three questions, however, led the founder to a niche strategy of offering 15-minute Zoom calls to rearrange the master bedroom for optimal, fast sleep for the parents. This meeting would be followed with a number of product suggestions in an email. It was marketed through a partnership with an Instagram channel that targeted new parents near the entrepreneur in Brooklyn. It offered and delivered the unique insight and met customers where they were. Survivorship bias and base rates seem like they make things harder, but really, they're just moving you away from strategies that wouldn't have worked in the first place and forcing you to be creative to find something that will. Some of this stuff can get tricky. Give a holler if you want to talk through it. Team at gettacklebox.com works for that. And have a great week. This is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you liked it, give us a rating and a review. Maybe share it with a friend. And if you've got a startup idea, head to gettacklebox.com. And if you want to apply, we've got another cohort starting March 31st.